You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. We're here with Professor Makao Mutawa. Um, he is the Sunni Distinguished Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Law, where he was also Dean from the years 2008 to 2014. Now, he's written several books on the human rights. Uh, most recently, he's got Human Rights Standards, Hegemony, Law and Politics. And he is one of the founding, well, one of the key people from the Twail um, theories of international law, which I'm hopefully going to speak more to him about today. But one of the main things that uh, Professor Mutawa encourages from everyone is to critically analyze the human rights project and to reflect on its ideological lineage and actually question whether the corpus is truly universal in nature or if more can be and actually whether more should be done to make it this universal. So Professor Mutawa, if Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, if you could just explain a bit more as to how you critically analyze the human rights system, what are your main findings? How do you find um, what's good, what's lacking? If you could just explain a bit more. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Dominique, for having me here um, at uh, the University of Pretoria, the Human Rights Center. It's, it's a wonderful thing uh, to interact with you and your colleagues and and students. Um, let me just say that um, uh, when people talk about critical approaches uh, to, to human rights, uh, the first reaction uh, by the people in the movement uh, is to assume uh, that uh, the critiquer has an antagonistic relationship with uh, the human rights movement or the discourse of human rights. Um, and I think that's a misunderstanding. Uh, we want to think of human rights as a project, uh, as part of the human experiment in the search of a better society. Uh, the movement itself encapsulates uh, a normative edifice uh, whose purpose is essentially prescriptive prescribing those things that ought to be done by states and societies to create a society that is free uh, or largely free of catastrophes, uh, free of privation, a society in which individuals and groups and communities are empowered. So it's a dogma which has a vision uh, of a better society. So what do you and, and which and which 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 assumes a dimension of universality. Now this is a very critical point. Uh, because if you denote something as universal, uh, essentially you are giving it uh, a fiat uh, to either vacate or transform, uh, you know, other universes, you know. So, I mean, you know, someone like Philip Austin has argued, for example, that if you call a claim a human right, you endow that claim with 
absoluteness, with universality, and with timelessness. That, to me, almost sounds like a forcible embrace of the entire planet, a kind of a flattening of the Earth, uh, and an imposition of an orthodoxy. And so one must wonder, um, what are the philosophical roots and cultural origins? What are the normative bases and predicates for this movement that makes it so compelling? So if a dogma or a doctrine claims for it the mantle of universality, I think we are entitled to be skeptical and to look at it not just once, twice, and again. And so that's been my project. My project has been to ask those questions and to challenge uh, those norms. Now, um, I think that the effort to create an international consensus on the attributes of the society that we want to live in, uh, as states, as communities, and as international community, I think that's a wonderful effort. Uh, but the question, of course, has always been, how do we get there? Who participates in creating uh, those norms that will, that will get us there? How do we know when a particular norm has acquired this, this uh, you know, sacred uh, plateau of universality? Um, and what makes the construction of the human rights movement different from the construction of other hegemonic discourses. Yeah. So these are some of the questions that I think um, any, any person uh, you know, with such a mind would, would ask uh, individuals who come uh, bearing the gift of a universal norm. So if I'm understanding you right, what you're really getting at is seeking a truer understanding of what the human rights is actually trying to do and how is, how is it playing out? And you speak about the type of society that human rights is advocating yeah. for. Yeah. What do you find that it is, and what is that type of society? Yeah, so, you know, um, earlier on in my career as a student and as a young professor, um, I, I grew up in the heyday of the human rights movement, uh, the golden age so to speak, um, in, in the 80s and, and the 90s, when human rights were all the rage. Um, a lot of the people who surrounded me, you know, my professors, people in the human rights movement, were true believers of the discourse. Uh, I found that there were very few critical voices uh, in the movement. In fact, I was often, or I thought, and I think I heard someone say it, now I'm not quite sure, but I think I heard someone say that there's a special place in hell <laughs> for people who are critical of human rights. <laughs> and, and, oh, yeah. and, and I was not quite sure whether I'll end up in that court place in hell myself. Um, but, 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 you know, the discourse is very seductive. You know, the language of equal protection, the language of anti-discrimination, uh, it's very seductive. 
I mean, who would not want to live in a society that was free, uh, you know, of, of those abominations? Um, uh, quite often I think of, uh, when I think of the language of human rights and this lofty, you know, aspirations, uh, I think of Christmas carols, you know. It warms the cockles of your heart, right? Um, but then when you search below the surface, uh, when, you, when you get below all the syrupy stuff, you know, you know, all the sweet stuff that uh, is preached, you realize that this is a serious business. It's a business about the reconstruction of societies. It's a business about the reconstruction of cultures. It's a business about uh, the creation of a, essentially a hierarchy of cultures uh, in which one culture is being presented or is presenting itself as superior to others. Uh, so you realize that there is, in the language, language of human rights, an authoring um, narrative, you know, an us and them, a subordinate and superior uh, relationship uh, in the discourse. So when you realize that, uh, as, as a true academic, uh, you must ask questions, and I began asking questions. Uh, and writing about this subject. Of course, uh, I, I, you know, I should put my cards on the table here. Um, I was born in Kenya, <clears throat> although I've lived most of my life in the United States, where I have become a professional, uh, an academic there. Um, but I still have you know, um, a sensibility of a person from the global south. Um, and so therefore, um, I, although I see myself as a global citizen, uh, my scholarship has taken a bias, uh, a Trillian bias, and this is the bias of um, uh, a perspective that we've come to call third world approaches to international law. And obviously, the way I see human rights, um, uh, I see human rights from, from partly through that lens, or largely through that lens, uh, the trillion uh, lens. Um, you know, so I don't think I, I, I'm going to be disclosing uh, you know, a major secret here when I, when I say that uh, the foundational tenets of the human rights movement uh, arise out of liberal theory uh, and philosophy. And there's a way in which uh, uh, in philosophical thought and political thought, we can date, time, and locate uh, liberalism. It's essentially a, um, a credo uh, um, of the European West, uh, uh, arising out of uh, the last 500 years. Um, the two basic, I think, um, pivots uh, of liberal thought and philosophy, which are, you know, uh, essential uh, for the human rights corpus, uh, um, formal equality and abstract autonomy, uh, expressed in anti-discrimination norms and equal protection. Uh, 
So these form the basis uh, of the human rights movement, uh, built around a set of texts and documents which place the individual at the center of the moral universe. Uh, this is a particular vision of society uh, as constructed in Europe, the modern political state, um, um, uh, which is expressed uh, in formal political democratic terms. Um, if you look at the, the norms that uh, constitute a political democracy, and you look at the human rights movement, you see a very high degree of convergence. Um, um, anyone who is familiar with the U.S. Constitution, for example, would not be surprised by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or would not be surprised by the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. There's a genealogy of these ideas. There's a custody of these ideas. Um, you know, going back to the promulgation of, uh, or the adoption of the, uh, the, the drafting and the adoption of the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, we see um, a, uh, a, uh, the beginnings of the construction of this dogma. Um, so if I may say so, um, I think the original sin, if, if one can revert to that religious metaphor, the original sin of the human rights corpus really was committed by the UN um, uh, Commission on Human Rights in drafting the UDHR. It is not that I want to say the UDHR is, 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 is an illegitimate document. It is not illegitimate. Uh, but it, it's incomplete. It captures a, one vision of a particular human society. Um, I know people like to say that uh, among the drafters were, you know, a Chinese, um, an Arab in, in Malik. Uh, but the organizing principles of the UDHR uh, are themselves lifted, you know, out of very familiar um, norms uh, in liberal thought and philosophy. So, so it, 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 would, it stretches credulity, I think, from my own point of view, to make the argument with a straight face that the UDHR was a universal document. Could you explain more about the incompleteness that you talk about? Because a lot of people will say, but you've got civil and political rights, you've got economic and social rights. How do you see it being incomplete? Yeah, so, um, so incompleteness comes in many forms. Um, you know, so for example, if we are sitting down to construct a universal document, we want first of all to understand who is sitting down, you know, who really is at the table. Uh, we know that if uh, you cannot, you should not talk for me unless I'm, I'm there. We know that you should not tell me who I am if I've not told you who I am. We know that you should not assume who I should become 
if I have not told you what my aspirations are. Uh, you also should not assume that you know me better than I know myself. If you make all these assumptions, and then you come up with a document, and then you feed it back to me, and you tell me that this document also belongs to you, uh, in essence, you have violated the first principle of human rights, which is that you've not allowed me to have a voice in the process. And I think this is one of the original sins of the, of, of the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It is its exclusivity in its construction. That was one. Um, uh, the second thing I think, uh, you know, which is important is that documents do not become universal because the, the, the people who draft them say so. Universality is a process uh, of legitimation uh, uh, through participation, uh, through vetting, and through content. Uh, it, 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 it would surprise, uh, you know, and I think it should concern anyone who is interested in the legitimacy of thought that a commission constructed the way the UN Human Rights Commission, Commission on Human Rights was constructed, could just come up with a, with a universal document uh, around a table and then sell it as such. Uh, I'm not saying that what starts as particular cannot become universal. It can. But that's an, a different question. How do you process uh, a particular ethnocentric, essentially a Eurocentric document, and make it universal? Uh, what kind of process do you, do you have to go through to do that? Uh, and so there, we would look at subsequent documents uh, in the human rights movement. We'll look at the ICCPR, for example, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. We would look at uh, the ICSER, the International Covenant on uh, Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. We'll look at other documents, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, you know, subsequent uh, human rights documents, to see if we can see the genetic, the cultural genetic fingerprint of other cultures, so that we can see if the canvas, the philosophical canvas of the original document, the UDHR, has been stretched and has been transformed, has been cross-fertilized, has been multiculturalized by other cultures to come up with um, a larger vision. And I say this because um, you know, all documents, um, uh, whether they are documents of law, they are documents of sociology, they are, you know, whatever they are, um, are cultural. And I'm not talking about culture here as uh, something in the Museum of Antiquities, clearly. I'm talking about culture as uh, the accumulation of a people's wisdom. And do you think you're starting to see the human rights system changing to embrace more of these, or is it still the same way the UDHR is? Is it still very monolithic? So that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's almost like a trick question, actually. <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> so <laughs> because, because the question you are asking someone, I consider myself a, um, um, an insider-outsider. Could you explain that? So I consider myself, I don't consider myself as a person who wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In fact, you know, I've 
often told people that um, I am a human rights advocate. Yeah, I have actually said that. Uh, and uh, if you know something about my history, I am the founding chair of the Kenya Human Rights Commission, uh, which is based in Nairobi. Um, I have taught human rights uh, for many, many years. I've written about, about human rights. Um, but I do see, I do see the deficits. Um, you know, so, so what do I think has happened? Um, so human rights norms, if we look at them as contained in international documents, yeah, treaties, declarations and protocols and so on. Uh, that process is state-centric. In other words, it is uh, states that get together to agree on these documents and sign them. My, what, my biggest concern is that those texts do not represent the accumulated, the accumulated wisdom of the cultures that are represented by those states. There's a very large deficit between states and their peoples. These deficits are democratic deficits, deficits of, 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 of participation. So for example, if um, the, the government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo goes and signs the Convention Against Torture, or goes and signs the convention, CEDAW, for example, the Convention for Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, it, it would shock me a great deal if um, the government of, of the Congo signed that document uh, on the assumption that the Congolese people had internalized that document. Or that to make it even more problematic, to complexify it, that the government of the Congo that signed that document was itself a legitimate government from a representational point of view. And, or that the person who signed the document understood the document that they were signing, which is, which is even more troublesome. So there's, there's a sense in which I think uh, that um, you know, if you just go by how many people have signed documents, how many states have signed documents, there's a problem with hypocrisy. So you know, uh, we know that hypocrisy is a homage that vice pays to virtue. So, so for example, uh, you know, states will sign onto these documents because it's a public relations exercise. It makes them look good. They have no intention of deepening these documents or applying them. So this is just one problem. So you wonder, for example, if these states participated in the drafting of these documents at the UN level, who are they speaking for? Who are they representing? So there's this very serious disconnect between the the official human rights documents and the process of drafting those, those documents and the cultures that, that are required to submit themselves to these documents 
or to transform themselves based upon these documents. This is a big problem of legitimacy. Um, and I see that problem as a universal one. In fact, what I would say is that it is not the documents which are universal. It is the problem of their lack of universality that is universal. Um, so, so what does this mean to me? This means to me that um, uh, you know, I would like to see uh, a more dialogic relationship between, between states uh, and between legitimate states and cultures. Uh, because you are asking, uh, in drafting a human rights document, you are asking cultures to submit themselves to those norms. You're asking cultures to submit themselves. You are pointing fingers at those cultures and telling them that, sorry, your own accumulated wisdom as a society is not good enough. We have something better that should replace what you guys have been doing. So this, this to me, is one of the basic contradictions of the human rights movement. Uh, uh, so, so I think, that, I think there, there, there clearly has been a rush to claim universality, where none, where I think, um, you know, even if it exists on some issues, it's thin. It's a thin, it's a, it's a mile long and an inch deep universality, which means that there really is no, uh, you know, uh, uh, staying power you know, to the discourse in, in many societies. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, people often ask uh, themselves, you know, why is it that, um, you know, North American states, meaning the United States and Canada, and European states are more comfortable in their internal domestic orders with the human rights, with, with, with human rights norms. Not perhaps the human rights movement, but with human rights norms. Things like speech rights, rights of association, uh, uh, political participation rights, and so on. Um, questions about separation of powers and so on. Uh, you know, uh, the place of the individual in society, uh, this kind of sacred place, if you will, of the individual society. People ask, why are they so comfortable with this? Well, it's, the answer is simple. They are comfortable with this because it's a development out of their history. Yeah. It's, it's their cultural wisdom. And so if you want to, for example, cross borders and go to Africa, or cross borders and go to, to, to India or to China, for example, um, you know, where uh, the idiom of the liberal tradition is not germane to the native tongue, uh, you are asking those cultures to transform themselves uh, to become liberal societies and to construct governmental institutions and societal institutions 
that will accommodate uh, this near reality uh, of the human rights movement. So it should come as no surprise that countries and states resist the human rights movement because it is not implanted in their domestic, uh, political, cultural, and philosophical traditions. Now this is not to say, and, and, and I want to make this very clear, it is not to say that, that, that the human rights movement is, 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 is wholly illegitimate. Uh, you asked me why I talked about incompleteness. Yeah. You know, I think one has to accept the validity of, of the European experience, but for Europe. Or as one of the contributions to a larger canvas of universality. So let us say you have a basket of ideas. Okay, the Europeans will come and deposit their contributions in the basket. Other cultures will also come and do so. My own claim is that, um, that the basket that we have is largely a European basket. You know, there have been areas in which I think uh, some things have, have happened in the last 20 years where I can see, uh, you know, an attempt to embrace uh, other cultures. But I think the, the central genius if I may call it that, of the corpus, remains uh, inherently European. So, for example, uh, I'll just say, I'll say number one, uh, the, the, the human rights corpus uh, equates the containment of political despotism with the attainment of human dignity. So the assumption is that once you contain political despotism, you will create, you allow people to live a life of dignity. In other words, the corpus thinks that once you contain political despotism, that's it. The problem is resolved. Create a democratic society, create a society where people can express themselves. Expressive rights are supposed to be this, the kind of the antidote to all the other societal ills. But clearly, um, you know, the root causes of powerlessness, you know, lie in the way in which economies are organized. Okay, the building blocks of economic structures. Sadly, the human rights movement uh, is very uncomfortable. Uh, articulating um, a vision, a universal vision, of the kind of economic society that we should have. It has articulated for us the kind of political society that we should have. And that's understood. And in fact, I have very few debates with, them, with, with the movement about those because I also want to live in a free society with, with, with free speech and so on and so forth. But we as scholars, um, and of course policymakers are also implicated here, 
there's a warfulness uh, and, a, and, a tim and, a, and a timidness about uh, you know, wrestling with economic powerlessness and addressing the demon of free markets and especially the excesses of this demon of free markets and globalization. Not simply um, looking at the catastrophic consequences of globalization, but asking fundamental questions about, about private property, uh, about free markets, about property ownership, about economic arrangements. We are uncomfortable as human rights um, thinkers about money. We shy away from this. And yet, that really is the root cause of powerlessness. You know, the root cause of powerlessness really is not, it's not fundamentally in the arena of politics. I agree that's important. It's really in the way, you know, uh, economies are organized, how wealth is produced, how wealth is distributed and shared. You know, that's a fundamental question. Now, if you look at the second covenant, uh, or some people might call it the first, you know, the, I call it the other covenant. Uh, the ICSER. If you look at that covenant, it's, it's, it's a sad attempt, in my view, to uh, articulate uh, a welfare state. And so that's what you see the goal of that being? Of the ICSER. Yeah. It's to articulate a welfare state, to put a face, a human face on capitalism, on, on, on free markets and, and free enterprise. But if you look at the enforcement uh, provision, which is Article 2 of the ICSR, you can drive a huge truck through that. Uh, yeah, through that. So, so for example, the, 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 essentially the, the enforcement provision says that, you know, um, don't do anything. Don't do anything. In contrast, if, for example, you look at the ICP, ICCPR, you know, Article 2 of the ICCPR, the enforcement provision, is very clear-cut about the kind of, of, of obligations that a state is going to be held to. Okay. So, so right there, you have, I mean, I could, see, I could see the attempts of the drafters to try to create at least a thin warfare state in the Second Covenant, if not a thick warfare state, at least a thin warfare state. But it is in the enforcement provision where states are given a carte blanche to do nothing. And that's really is sad. And I understand the political, of course, uh, pressures that, that were in, in, in at play uh, in the drafting process uh, and the resistance, of course, of, uh, of Western countries to, 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 uh, to address deeply embedded you know, economic and social inequities. Uh, but that's where powerlessness lies. So if the international system is unable to address the powerlessness, mm. can the regional mechanisms or the regional human rights systems, are they better placed? If you just take Africa, for example. Yes. Because obviously the economies are big problems and there's a lot of powerlessness in how you're using the term powerlessness. Yes. Have we seen better attempts? Because you can't... If we're going with, well, the AU system, the African system, is done by Africans, supposedly for Africans, mm. is it better? 
Yeah, this is a question. I mean, or is the African system the fruit of a poison tree? Uh, or if the tree itself is poisoned at the root, how, do you, how can the branch be, be, be edible? So, so, so the question, the question I, get, I guess is this, um, and I don't want to um, dismiss mm -hmm. the African system as, as, as wholly inadequate. I, there are aspects of it that I think are very important. But again, like everything else, we want to go to gene genealogy and we want to go to the custody of ideas in the African Charter. Okay, because those ideas have a history, they have a, there's, a, there's a custody of those ideas. And, uh, you know, uh, so, so, so the charter is um, adopted in 81. Guess what? There was not a single democracy in Africa in 81. <laughs> Sad but true. So that is the first iron of the entire document. So then you begin to ask yourself, how can dictators produce a human rights document? It's really shocking, right? Uh, so one can only th think of the most um, uh, obsequious motives. So for example, one can think, you know, perhaps it was a PR exercise because, well, they wanted people to forget about Idi Amin and Bokassa and so on. And this, of course, might be seen as a cynical yeah. explanation. Uh, you know, but if you look, when you look at the provisions, you look at, for example, the clawback clauses in the Charter, you begin to think, oh, perhaps it's a cynical exercise. Uh, but what begins, uh, uh, you know, as a hypocritical exercise does not have to end up as a, as a hypocritical exercise. Um, so, for example, the, uh, the African Commission uh, has uh, issued jurisprudence that uh, seeks to negate the clawback clauses okay, by developing the, what are the, a several part test uh, that seeks to vacate you know, those clawback clauses. So there's a contestation going on to reinterpret the charter, to take it away from the, from the fangs and uh, the claws of the dictators. Uh, there are additional protocols and instruments, that, you know, documents on women and, and children and so on and refugees. So there's an edifice there that is developing. Um, of course, the African Charter we know uh, departed materially in terms of philosophy from the international script. Um, by providing, uh, you know, for things like duties on individuals, by uh, collapsing the generations of rights into one, you know, all these are, you know, admirable, admirable sort of developments which are good. So perhaps what the dictator gave us can 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 be reconstructed and reclaimed. Um, uh, you know, so but a lot depends on, on interpretation. A lot depends on on the guardians of the African uh, system. You know, because we know it's a state state centric system. Uh, to what extent is it open to uh, suggestion for progressive purposes, or is it is it uh, is it is it um, are the various you know committees and and institutions within the system going to be packed with 
uh, apparatchiks and um, and um, you know um, uh, apologists for the post-colonial state, which doesn't seem to have much interest in in in, in free societies in Africa. Um, but I but I should say, uh, you know, as much as Africa, you know, complains about a scandalous and an unjust international legal and economic order. Uh, within the context of the AU, they have not done much to address that question themselves, to provide us with more guidance. Uh, and part of why they have not done that is because I believe that um, uh, in many African states, uh, you know, there are active measures to suppress progressive thinkers in universities and uh, within the intelligentsia. So these are the people who would be developing your system for you, but yet you are suppressing them, uh, you know, from providing those ideas. And you are instead, you know, dumping um, party apparatchiks and uh, state-centric individuals into these ins institutions, you know, it's, it's not, not, mu not much can happen there. Uh, now, I think there are, occasionally there are some subversive, there are some, su some, some subversive moves within the AU system. They're there. Yeah, you know, you know, and I think those ones, of course, I welcome those very much. Um, uh, but I think of bigger concern uh, for me as well is the kind of uh, symbiotic relationship that does not exist between the African instruments and African organs within the human rights system there uh, and state institutions at the national level. So There's a disconnect there. Picking up on that last point, just as a quick final mm. question. Yeah. If we're looking at a regional system, and to a degree the international as well, yes. is it likely that this um, legitimacy that you talk about, is that going to come from changes made at the bottom up, or is it going to come from changes that we see at the state level? Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I think um, you know, the relationship, I think, between the regional system in Europe and the international system is less contentious. Uh, obviously, we know that there is no regional system in Asia. Uh, it's not even contentious. It's, it's not only it is non-existent uh, within Africa. It's 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 been contentious uh, philosophically, not not in practice, but philosophically there have been some philosophical clashes there, as we've seen with the African Charter. Uh, so what I would say, I would say that the African system largely legitimates the, the, the UN system in Africa. Uh, it, 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 it acts as an errant boy, if you will, for the global system, for the hegemonic global system, uh, and plays this subordinate role, ultimately, to the global system. Um, the way I look at uh, this question that we're asking me of legitimation and, 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 um, and, uh, and cultural uh, sort of 
uh, attachment to the continent. The way I see that really is to say that uh, is to look at it from the, from the way in which we think of um, the making of rights, the social construction of rights. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so we know that rights are fights, yeah. and they are fights over resources, they are fights over identity, they are fights over politics, they are fights between, you know, power and powerlessness. Um, I don't expect states to give us anything as Africans. I don't expect that. I expect Africans to fight for it, uh, and I don't expect uh, state, you know, uh, officials to give it to, to Africans. I think it has to come from the ground up. Um, so I'm still waiting for the human rights revolution on the African continent. And that revolution may have to be waged against the regional African human rights system by Africans. Well, Professor Mutua, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us. Thank you very much. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestras, in conversation with Professor Mikhail Matua. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues.